Welcome to the Oxygen Mask Podcast. If you're here as a parent or caregiver, educator or grandparent, we are glad to have you listening. This podcast is geared for the autism parent, but we welcome and invite all who are drawn to be here with us. I'm Beth and I'm your host. The title of this podcast, The Oxygen Mask, is based on a metaphor. Just as you're instructed on an airplane to put on your own oxygen mask before helping others, we believe we need to practice helping ourselves as parents so we can best help our children. And at the beginning of every episode, we're gonna take that metaphor and turn it into a concrete practice. Pausing just a few times every day to quiet our busy minds and breathe into our bellies provides stress-reducing neurochemicals. With practice over time, we actually build pathways in our brain that help reduce our stress response. So even if you hit play on this podcast, ready to enter multitasking mode, please take a moment of pause for yourself. Close your eyes and bring your attention to your feet as they contact the surface beneath them, rooting you to this place, this moment. Roll your shoulders back and let them settle in a strong, relaxed posture. Take a belly breath in through your nose. Feel the sensation of air at the rims of your nostrils, curling through the back of your throat. Exhale slowly, noticing your chest fall and your belly soften. Draw another deep breath in. Envision cool air swirling up to your forehead, around and even inside your skull. Exhale, letting the cool air flow down the back of your neck, across and inside your shoulders and down your back. Bring your attention to your face as you take a final cleansing breath in. Notice your temples, eyebrows, and jaw. Whatever you find there, let it be. At the top of your in-breath, bend your elbows and softly place your hands on your hips. Exhale slowly, perhaps letting a smile curl the corners of your mouth. Hold this posture for a few seconds as you open your eyes. Again, welcome. We are so glad you're here. So hello and welcome to the Oxygen Mask Podcast. I'm Beth Durker, host of the podcast and Executive Director of Communities Engaging Autism, or CEA. It's a Minnesota nonprofit serving families of young children with autism. I've mentioned in previous episodes that CEA has a grant from the Minnesota Department of Human Services, and that grant makes this episode possible. It's also been a thrill in that grant program to connect to other organizations one of which um, is the Down Syndrome Association of Minnesota. And today that's how I met Ashley Oltoff, who's the director of the Family Connector Program at the Down Syndrome Association of Minnesota. And true to her role, Ashley has introduced me to my second guest today, Marcy Reed, who is a parent of a young adult with Down Syndrome and autism. And in talking with these two women, we just wanna build understanding of the experience of families raising kids with Down syndrome and autism. Ashley and Marcy, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. So Ashley, let's start with you. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and your role in the Down Syndrome Association of Minnesota? Thanks so much for having us. Yes, my name is Ashley. I'm the director of the Family Connector Program. 
we shorten it to DSAM, Down Syndrome Association Minnesota, because it's such a mouthful. So <laughs> at DSAM, uh, my connection is my son, Oliver. He is seven and a half. He was born with Down syndrome. Um, I've been a volunteer with DSAM since he was six months old, so almost seven years, and helping to lead a family group to get families together to gain access to resources and information. And the Family Connector program came about from a grant from DHS to help us connect families with vital um, referrals, resources, and services. So we help families navigate complex systems like county services, finding medical providers, finding mental health resources, all of those really important things. So, okay, so in our conversations, you were the one that really raised my awareness of this dual diagnosis of autism and Down syndrome. I knew I had one personal relationship with a family with that dual diagnosis. And can you tell me just a little bit about that larger maybe statistic you pointed out to me, and then we'll dive in and hear from Marcy. So tell me a little bit about this dual diagnosis of the two. There's research around uh, 20% of individuals with Down syndrome will also be diagnosed with autism. Depending on the source of research, I've seen that number as high as 40%. So there is a large overlap in our community of individuals who have Down syndrome and autism. And that brings us over to Marcy. Can you introduce yourself and tell us about your family? Yeah, hi. So my wife and I have three kids and our oldest is Shanika. We adopted her when she was four. She's 26 now. And we knew she had Down syndrome when we adopted her, but it took us a couple of years to get the additional autism diagnosis. It was very new then. It was, you know, 20 years ago um, that they would actually give a dual diagnosis. They didn't want to add a diagnosis of anything to the Down syndrome diagnosis. Everything was chalked up to Down syndrome. Um, and that still is a little bit the case now, but um, less and less um, more people are, are able to kind of access what that secondary diagnosis means uh, for their family in different ways. And it was also, uh, it's also kind of challenging to differentiate between intellectual or developmental delays and um, developmental disorders, which, uh, you know, autism isn't more in that disorder category. And so, you know, it's, it's really easy to test for Down syndrome. You can get a medical test and you can say, this is what someone has. But when you get into other diagnoses um, that, you know, now people are understanding that people with Down syndrome can have you know, ADHD, uh, just a, a general more sensory dysfunction, even mental health stuff like the depression, anxiety, that kind of thing, which they would not consider um, as anything in addition to Down syndrome, because that was just either more Down syndrome or <laughs> less Down syndrome. And uh, now people have kind of that, that deeper understanding of how People with Down syndrome might have a lot of features of different things, but they uh, also can be having additional diagnoses. Yeah, I want to dig deeper into what you said, some of the delay disorder pieces, but I want to, Ashley, can you help us zoom out a little bit for those of us in the audience? Like we talk autism all the time, but maybe less familiar with Down syndrome. Can you tell us just like your elevator speech since you're the the rep for the state organization. 
<laughs> no pressure. But yes, so Down syndrome uh, is a genetic condition that occurs usually when there's a third copy of the 21st chromosome. So that extra genetic material alters a lot of the development, alters um, as the child ages, uh, development changes as well. We don't fully know why that mutation occurs. There is a link between maternal age and the occurrence of Down syndrome, but I always point out that 80% of babies born with Down syndrome are born to a mother under the age of 35. So it's not to blame a mother for having a child younger or older in age. We still don't fully know why it occurs, but um, that extra genetic material results in a cognitive impairment, usually mild to moderate, um, but it is a really large ability varies greatly. Also, um, some additional medical complexities. Our kiddos are usually born with lower muscle tone, hypotonia, so they need OT, PT, speech, um, usually smaller stature, so a little bit shorter, and then some very distinctive facial features that, again, vary greatly depending on the individual. So it really is a large variety of ability levels you know, some heart issues, some vision and hearing issues can occur because of that extra genetic material. And what we hear a lot is, you know, that stereotype people with Down syndrome are always happy or they're always easy going with the flow. And uh, people with Down syndrome experience the full range of emotions and can feel upset, can have tantrums, uh, can be mad, and just that they're people too. So Marcy, can you tell us a little bit about your process of learning and kind of finding community? Right. So, you know, like you said, obviously we knew that she had Down syndrome before we even adopted her. We got to meet some of her team. You know, she was already in uh, special ed, early childhood, and we had personally some experience with uh, teens and adults with Down syndrome. So we had some idea, but we didn't really know what four-year-olds with Down syndrome were supposed to be like. We knew that some of the stuff that we saw in her is also common in um, especially younger kids with Down syndrome, um, things like sensory seeking and avoiding and some food issues and, and maybe not the same age appropriate, you know, play and that kind of stuff. And so um, it took us a, a while to really get to the point where we thought maybe this is something even more than just her Down syndrome delay. Um, and it was when we first went to a DSAM support group and we saw her in a room with a bunch of other kids her age, you know, preschoolers with Down syndrome. And we saw that she was very different from um, in the way that she interacted with her environment and with her peers and with the other adults in the room, you know, that the other kids were playing with toys and were interacting with each other and uh, you know, seeking help from adults. And, um, and Shanika didn't have any of that. She, you know, she would interact with stuff in a sensory way. She would play with the sand, she would watch the lights and music, but she uh, really just didn't, and didn't have any of that social interaction piece at all. And so that's, that's when we, we were, you know, saw that it was necessary to kind of pursue, yeah, this is something different and not just 
her delays and, you know, she, you know, had kind of extra delays for having been in the system and some other extra challenges, but, um, but that this was more than all of that even. I know the one, the friend I have who's got a kid with the dual diagnosis as well said that it was watching her child around other kids and seeing that difference, um, like it different the Gigi's playhouse play groups and things like that um but it was like wait a minute there's something more here that's happening because you just get used to what your day-to-day is um but then when you see that comparison Ashley do you have more to say about that sort of kind of moment and what you've seen with families um navigating this yeah it it is hard for families to navigate because there is such a wide variety of abilities within down syndrome and so I feel like we are kind of comparing our kids to other kids and there is that wide variety that we see. And so looking, you know, the National Down Syndrome Society has great information about that dual diagnosis and autism and what are those additional things to look for. But there is such an overlap between um, what you would see in autism and what you would see in Down syndrome. So uh, my son who has Down syndrome, he doesn't have a dual diagnosis of autism, but when I was reading their website, he has a lot of, you know, the sensory concerns, the sleep pattern uh, concerns, the struggle with picky eating, the, you know, liking routine, not being happy if routines are changed. Um, It is a really complex thing to navigate and not always having providers who are aware that that dual diagnosis can occur and not always having an education team that's aware can make it really challenging for families as well. Yeah, I think when I describe to people the kinds of things that we saw and still see in Shanika, that if you take any of those things individually, you know, most other families with Down syndrome would say, well, yeah, my kid does that, you know, um, but it was kind of the intensity and the the confluence and the and that that in primarily that interaction piece and then eventually the communication piece and you know people with down syndrome are often delayed in their communication um but Shanika is 26 and she's still not verbal and that that's the kind of thing that made it challenging to get that extra diagnosis was because they didn't want to they didn't want to layer anything on you know a second diagnosis and an autism diagnosis is heavy um it takes a lot to kind of process and and you know a lot of times when people are just figuring out you know where their supports are for their kid with down syndrome and then suddenly they're in another universe of autism where you know you may not even fit in between you know fit perfectly in either of those camps, it's, it's really challenging as a parent to kind of figure out where, where to go even for um, the, the support that you're looking for. So thinking about um, what was your process like, how much time and energy did you spend in that place of questioning and then being told, oh, that's just, the, that's what Down syndrome looks like. What did it take to get you into clarity around the autism factor? And then what was that like for your kind of social navigational kind of experience? Yeah. I mean, it, it, I mean, it took almost two years all told. I think that it was for us, it was a lot, it was a lot quicker for us personally because we could see it, you know, in her every day and her compared to other kids with down syndrome. Um, And so by the time we finally had the professionals actually finally give us that 
a diagnosis that we knew was the case, um, it was it was kind of a relief um, <laughs> because you know it was not it was what we we just we we knew <laughs> you know it, we didn't really get to know other families with the dual diagnosis for a long time. I partially because again they weren't giving it much back then, um, and so we you know we found uh, peers and support where we could, you know, we, um, we got involved with the autism society a little bit. We did some camp kind of stuff, um, but we mostly stayed involved with the Down syndrome association, but we also found support in uh, with other adoptive families who had that complex mix of multiple diagnoses. Um, they kind of understood that intensity a little bit more and so that was where we found some of our support as well. It's so similar. I mean, we, you know, we live in the world of autism. It, it usually is that that diagnosis kind of supersedes all the other, you know, even the Down syndrome diagnosis in kind of daily living and, you know, in, in educational setting and med medical settings and all of that. But you know, one of the things that I think is really different that we don't talk about much is that because Down syndrome is a visible disability, typically, we have a different experience going out in public because we have people expect our kids to be a little bit different and to act a little differently. So when Shanika makes strange noises, it's not as off-putting as, you know, and when, you know, kids with autism who don't have visible disability features when they act strangely or whatever, but we definitely, it was really other parents that were the kind of the main way for us to find support. We would go to activities like uh, hippotherapy and we would just talk to other parents or, or even just outside of any other therapy room, we would find out about other supports and, and just kind of get that emotional support from other parents. Yeah, I feel like I could go through my phone contacts and look at all these people I met at various places, usually in waiting rooms. And because you have this time and you, I always thought there should be like a social worker or a therapist in the waiting rooms of places so that you can help parents just in that moment to like work through some things or make some connections or take a nap. I don't know. You wouldn't need a right. social worker for that. You just, anyway, yeah. Right. You said something that really caught my attention. So in daily living situations and education, the autism diagnosis sort of supersedes the Down syndrome diagnosis. Can you say more about that? It's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I was trying to kind of figure out how to, how that works myself. I mean, when, I guess I don't have the experience of having a kid with just Down syndrome moving through the world. So I don't know as much about what that's like. But I think people, in some ways, people know a little bit more about Down syndrome and like what a, what a delay might look like. And you can kind of assume someone's younger or something like that. And again, that visible disability helps when you have a, you know, when you have a kid that's much older and doing things that are, that are out of the norm for that, you know, for that age of expectation, you know, or having the really intense sensory experiences. You can't take your kid this place. You can't, um, you know, you can't expect you can go to a place and have food that they'll eat, you know, that kind of thing that not everybody with a kid with Down syndrome experiences. All of that 
and, and, you know, the communication issues, the social issues, you know, it's all just so much more intense than, than your average experience with Down syndrome. I think that that's, um, you know, especially educationally, people with Down syndrome have pretty specific educational needs and they're not always the same as people with autism. So um, we found that educators were very interested in, oh, okay, we can do, we can use these autism strategies. This is really helpful. Um, This is different than what we would do with just a kid with Down syndrome. Yeah, that completely, that makes a lot of sense that just to engage in transitions, in getting ready for the day, in there's, there's a lot more nuance, a lot more support needs along the way and in the classroom setting for sure. Anything pop up for you, Ashley, that you want to highlight from what Marcy has said? Yeah. So, you know, there is that overlap of similarity for needs from Down syndrome and autism. They, you know, some of those things are similar, but then what I hear from families of a child who has the dual diagnosis is that they don't feel like they can access the same spaces. Like the parent groups feel unmanageable to them because of the additional needs of having that dual diagnosis or, you know, we have a world Down syndrome day uh, and we like, to have a big party and all get together. And those families who have a dual diagnosis, they feel like that is too, you know, my son has sensory issues as well, but that dual diagnosis just makes it harder to manage and makes it less accessible to our families. And so I hear from families a lot that they feel like they don't fit in in the Down syndrome community, but also maybe they don't really fit in with the autism community. So for us at DSAM, how do we bridge that gap? How do we ensure all of our programming is accessible to all of our families um, and that we're meeting the needs of all of our families to make sure that we provide that support? So that was a, a hypothetical kind of question. How do we bridge that? Are there ways that you've, I mean, just doing, having this conversation and you reaching out to me and saying, hey, And I'm sure, I hope this podcast draws people's interest and imagination sort of getting their their gears turning. But what have you, have you done any work around that or connected families in that way yet? Um, Mercy helps and has helped for a while with, uh, we have a Facebook group for families who have a diagnosis of Down syndrome and autism. So I think first and foremost, just connecting with other parents, connecting with parents who understand your unique situation that is so powerful. So facilitating those parent-to-parent connections, I hope that in that Facebook group, then those families are connecting with one another and hopefully taking that conversation offline as well and providing that support to each other, helping each other get connected with resources and referrals. And we'd love to see that group continue to grow and maybe that would become you know like a monthly group that gets together either virtually or in person as well we're looking at how can we alter modify our events our programming to make sure that it's accessible to our families as well beautiful those are the the most like first impression right families take a risk in showing up to something you want them to be successful so that they'll continue and connect to the next thing or meet one person that they want to stay in touch with, that sort of thing. So like you said, accessing the spaces. And one of the things I'm super grateful for is social media because it gives people a way to connect 
that is, uh, you know, a lot more accessible, especially to our families, because we can't do as much in person necessarily. Um, and um, because that that isolation that every family with a kid with differences runs into can be so much deeper um, when you don't feel like you 100% fit into either group or category um, uh, that sometimes those connections that we can make online are just invaluable that we can finally find that other person that gets it that you know my kid doesn't talk or you know my kid can't go to any of those events even though it would be great as a family to support the organization that we that we've gotten support from we've hardly ever been able to have Shanika at any of the DSAM events uh, you know just because they don't that it's you know crowds are not her thing and that's what events are about you know um, and so even though we've been involved for years, it's not something that our family could partake in. Having that, those sideways ways of connecting, you know, whether it's online or whatever, you know, we, we've never been able to get a, a group in person of families with Down syndrome and autism because there's just never been a space or a place or a time that people could really all fit into. Um, but being able to do that online, I think, you know, now that we have even more practice, meeting online <laughs> it's um that's uh those possibilities are are really exciting that is exciting and i think marcy about your time frame you know you talked about meeting other parents and finding supports in different waiting rooms and things like that but now your daughter is in her 20s right and yeah. but you and you have the social media factor so that might be a, a boost in terms of support and connection, but what is your support network? How has it shifted with the transition age that you guys are in right now? What does it look like? Or maybe it hasn't shifted. Maybe it's the, the anchors from, from years past. Yeah, I think that it's largely the people that we got to know, you know, through childhood. And it's those folks that we found that get it, you know, uh, we now, you know, she's in a day program now, um, and we have been trying to get more with some of those folks, but, but they're not necessarily having the same experience we are either because they're a lot of the folks in her day program because of what she's interested in during the day, you know, have even more medical issues and are even less able to be interactive. And so she's always been kind of in that in between place, you know even in school, you know, do we put her in the DD room or does she go in the room where the, everybody, you know, hangs out in their chairs and has G-tubes and, you know, and she doesn't fit in either place. And so that's, you know, we've, we've been in that, that, that in-between place always, but we're pretty happy to have found a, a day program that she enjoys and then the few activities that she enjoys. Um, a lot of times, I think this, this happens for a lot of people, you know, her social network is her support staff, um, is the people that that take her places and do things with her. You know, she is less interested in interacting with people in general. And so um, it, they have to be really familiar for her to really make that connection. So for us, it's our old friends and uh, and then, you know, the people who are super familiar for her. So I feel like we've also settled into a routine that doesn't change a whole lot either. In some ways, it's a little bit easier because um, she's not expected to be. It, it, we, we were told once it's easier when people with autism get to be teenagers and older because 
They're not expected to play with other kids all the time. If they sit with their headphones on all the time, that's more socially acceptable. And, uh, and I think that that's, that's, for her, that's the case. There's less demands on her because she's not in school. <laughs> so um, so there, there's less asked of her. And so she's generally a happier person <laughs> because of that. And because, you know, what we, we can really just pursue her interests and uh, not constantly be worried about trying to work on academics or, um, you know, we're pushing her through music therapy and swimming and all of that, but we, it's not, it's more of where she's interested in being focused, which is nice. That sounds like really joyful in terms of your role as a parent, just sort of a little bit lighter and a little bit more, yeah, just seeing her follow and build on her interests and pursuits. That sounds exciting. Yeah, it's definitely a lot less struggle. Yeah. Well, do any, either of you have other pieces to add? Some families like Marcy, you know, they're wanting this diagnosis. They're searching for answers. They're searching for resources Mm. and services. Some families in our Down syndrome community, it is brought up by a provider or by an educator that, you know, we might start the evaluation for an autism diagnosis, a dual diagnosis, and families can be resistant. They are fearful of facing another diagnosis. They don't want to deal with another diagnosis. They're already dealing with a lot with Down syndrome. Our kids are amazing and we love them and, you know, we wouldn't change anything about them, but it is hard to be the parent of a child with a disability like Down syndrome. So adding another layer, adding complexity to it, sometimes families don't want to, but my hope would be that they would be able to connect with other families who have walked that journey and they would be able to see Marcy and her family and how They've navigated the system, they've connected with the services, and they're thriving. They're, you know, in your 20s, in her 20s, having a great time swimming and at music therapy, and just to give families hope and to give families connection in that that face of fear, um, I think is really important as well. Absolutely. Thank you for adding that. Absolutely. It's, it's such important work. I'm grateful, you guys, that, that you're making these connections. And I, I would love to stay connected on this topic and show up at maybe some events and, and help out or something. I, I've, I've tried to, that's how I got to know the autism, that Down syndrome family that I do know was just trying to help out in enabling their child to participate in church services. And it was really like, I didn't know everything walking into it. And I felt like I needed to know so much more, but it was, it was like showing up and adapting in small ways, listening and learning from the family and um, yeah, sort of connecting to that listening ear and just responding and being flexible. I was going to say those are, that's exactly what we all need, right? (laughs) We need Mm -hmm. people to listen and understand our, each of our unique journeys and what it, what it's like because you know other people don't don't understand and when we find other people who are at least willing to to try to listen and understand it's invaluable um thank you for having this this podcast service it's wonderful Mm -hmm. it's so fun so thank you ashley for kind of pulling at me and saying hey 
pay attention to this. And then we just kept talking about, haven't we talked about this for like six or seven months via email? <laughs> Most. Yes. So, but, I made it happen. <laughs> we've cool. been busy, but it's been so great to, you know, connect through the grant and learn about your organization, share about our organization. And, you know, we all have children who have different disabilities, yet there's so much overlap between our lives and the struggles we face and how we can each serve our own communities and each other's community together. Yeah, exactly. Well, and so in the show notes, listeners, check those out. Um, We've got a lot of different connections. All right. So thank you both for being here. Thank you for sharing with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. So we invite you to carry some of what you heard today into your day-to-day. Did you find kernels of joy or reassurance? Where did you feel some resistance? Let us know so we can learn and grow together. You can comment and subscribe to the podcast at Communities Engaging Autism's website, www.ceaforautism.org. Share the podcast with members of your village to strengthen those essential connections. And above all, Please secure your own oxygen mask before helping others.